0: Welcome to a new sermon series. I know some of you guys are like, "Thank God the other one's over." Um, Nope. Okay, just me. Uh, We're going to start a a new sermon series. We're going to be doing uh, the Sermon on the Mount for the next fourteen weeks. I know it sounds like a really long time. You guys are wow. All right. Somebody was like, "I don't even know what the Sermon on the Mount is, bro." What are you talking about? Um, And so let me let me just kind of clue you in on on why we chose to do the section I've been working on this uh concept of going through this for a while this is Jesus like main teaching his like most famous most intense sermon that he gave uh, it's called Sermon on the Mount because in the beginning of the sermon he climbs up onto a mountainside and starts to preach so people can hear him it's almost like a natural amphitheater right you um, also could have done sermon on the pond if you wanted to there's another section where he kind of Puts out into the pond and starts teaching, sure. Uh, But basically, this is the core teachings of uh, Jesus' main main thrust of his ministry. And the reason we chose this, and I'll just kind of let you in on a little behind the scenes, kind of how I'm thinking, is that this is going to be something that should be uh, pretty easy for uh, anyone to kind of fit in and preach. And we're in a little bit of a flux because I'm actually in the process of trying to find Uh, a scheduled date to get some heart surgery. So I'm going to be gone for six, seven, eight weeks at some point here in the next two months. Um, And so each one of these sermons, as we kind of unpack this incredibly dense material that Jesus kind of delivered, can stand alone. Each one of these sermons is pretty easy. So there's like, you know, you may, we may have a, a sermon about Uh, About you know um, judgment, for instance, and that can be a sermon just about judgment within the Sermon on the Mount. So, it makes it easy for us to be able to slide people in and out. Aaron will be Pastor Aaron will be preaching a bunch while I'm out. We'll have a couple of other people lined up to fill in some of those slots where Aaron's on vacation, or you know, just to kind of give you guys a a, uh, a break from having the same person every week. So, giving him a break from not having to preach like six weeks in a row. Um, and so we're going to basically piece it together, but each sermon is almost like a topical sermon within the the whole, okay? And, and here's the problem with doing the Sermon on the Mount and doing something this intense, this, this uh, full of information, is that sometimes we, I think we have a problem here in maybe our culture, maybe current Christians, we have a, a problem with taking in information and kind of sitting there and going, hmm... And then not doing anything with it. And you, I want you to know that's the danger of this sermon series for the next 14 weeks is that you could come here every week and you could learn a new thing that seems like a good idea and you could not apply any of it to your life at all and it would just be information for information's sake. I never want any of our sermons to be information for information's sake. Okay, there are times when I teach and times when I preach, and times when I beg and plead with you, and times when I, you know, uh, do a little bit more of a, a fire and brimstone, a, a little bit more of i a, of a, I'm your buddy, kind of put my arm around you. They're like, I'm trying to take different, uh, you know, ways of preaching and ways of thinking to bring you messages on Sunday so that it will lead to transformation. Not so that you will just learn new stuff, more stuff. Like, I do want us to continue to learn, and we, we talk about Scripture within context, we work through passages, it's important to us to do that, right, because we want to make sure that we're honoring the Bible, and we're, we're looking at all of it, and understanding it in its context, but also, it's for transformation. It's for us to be changed by, and the danger could be, during these next 14 weeks, that we could just learn a bunch of really nice things that, again, we could sew on pillows, or put up on the wall or put on a t-shirt and they would be right and they would be good things for us to learn but if we don't apply them then Jesus's teaching doesn't really change anything. I think there are a lot of people out there who aren't Christians who have a lot of respect for the the, the main teaching of Jesus. People out there who think I'm not a believer in God. I don't even I mean I think I kind of have a a decent opinion on who Jesus is. But like, to be perfectly honest with you, I like some of his teachings, but I'm not so sure that I want to be a Christian. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount has been quoted by like famous people, non, non-Christian people, for like eternity. Like presidents have quoted this and famous people have used it. And I mean, we get some of our most core teachings on how to like be decent, rational humans, right? From this, this section of teaching and yet, it doesn't always mean that someone has a relationship with God. If we get to a place where we're just learning stuff and we're not applying it and not being transformed by it, that's a danger, okay? And so today, I just want to give you an intro on what we're actually talking about here. And to do that, the, the Sermon on the Mount really starts a couple chapters later, but I want, to, I want to start in Matthew chapter 4. And I want to talk about the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus, as he kind of launches his, his ministry, uh, you know, he goes out to the wilderness and he is tempted, By the enemy, he comes back from the wilderness, and it says he comes back full of power, right? He comes back full of power, and he begins to preach. He starts with a simple message, and this is what it is, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. So we're going to pick it up right here. He says, from that time on, so when Jesus came back from the wilderness, and he came back in power, and he announced his ministry, he basically walked into um, the synagogue, and he read from Isaiah, and he read um, a prophecy about himself, and he basically dropped the mic, and then began to preach, right? And so this is what Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So that's his basic, very simple way of beginning his ministry, just to repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, it says, verse 18, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. So here's Peter and Andrew, or Simon at this point, and Andrew who are two fishermen living by the Sea of Galilee that puts Jesus in this section of northern uh, Israel, kind of this area that's kind of out of the way, not really important, not really a big deal. And this is where Jesus begins his ministry with talking to these two guys, these these two fishermen. It says, they were casting a net in a lake for they were fishermen. He said, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Gotta love the new the NIV who takes that gender neutral, right? I will make you fishers of men turns into, I will uh, help you fish for people, which is more accurate. But I'm just saying, it's like so many of us grew up with, I will make you fishers of men, right? And then the little girls are like, hey, how come I'm not going to get fished for? This doesn't make any sense to me. So he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near and come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And then these two guys have a decision to make. Now, to put you into perspective of their headspace, where two fishermen who are younger, but like sort of starting their career, sort of getting themselves established, it says they were the sons of Zebedee, they were well known throughout the area to be kind of like these rowdy guys, these kind of rough neck, sort of working with their hands, fishermen kind of guys. You know, in that day and age, if you were that age, it means you already were passed over to go on to secondary education. By the time you were kind of a young, uh, sort of, I don't know, like 10, 11, somewhere in that range, you were generally, if you were gonna go on to secondary education, you were picked up by a rabbi, they asked you to come and follow them, and then you would go hang out with this rabbi, and the rabbi would teach you, right, all of his ways, all of his, his teachings, and you would basically join this rabbi for a second level of education. They had already passed these guys by, they have already flunked out. They've already they've done the basic level of education, and now they're they're out. It's amazing to me that later on, you know, as Peter writes, and he has you know people writing for him, you know, he, he's he's still an uneducated guy throughout his his time. Like he's never somebody who's like you know one of the elites, somebody who's gone through all the education and has it all. He's just somebody who said yes to Jesus. So he says, "Come and follow me," and this would have been. The, the call of a rabbi to a young person to go on to that secondary level of education. So when he gets invited to come and follow this rabbi, to him, this is like an honor. To his family, it's an honor. Oh my goodness. Really? You want me? Are you sure? Do you know about me? I'm kind of like a work with your hands, blue collar, kind of a, I'm not really a smart dude. I don't know if I'm going to be able to hold up to this. Are you sure? This, you want me? You want, you want me and my brother? And so when it says, at once, verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him, you know, that seems like a crazy thing, but it wasn't. It was an honor to be invited by a rabbi to follow them. And so he does. He just leaves and he goes and says, okay, I want to go. I want to go and follow this rabbi. Someone has invited me to come and follow them. I'm going to do this. And at once they become disciples. Okay, so verse 21 says, going on from there, they saw two other brothers James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father. Sorry, these are the Zebedee brothers. I'm getting my my people mixed up here. Preparing their nets, Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed them. So these four guys just leave their boats, leave their nets, leave their families, and go and follow Jesus. And it says, and immediately they left their boat and father and followed them. And you gotta think also that in that day and age, your job and your family were the things that defined you as a person. Right? You were known as the Son of whoever, right in this case, the Son of Zebedee, and you were known for what you do. These guys are fishermen, nets, boats, the whole thing. okay And this is the identity that the, they had until Jesus came and invited them to follow him. And I want you to know that Jesus calls all of us, not just them, all of us, to become disciples. Okay? He, he invites us all to become disciples invited them to become disciples. And what this means for us is it means we trade our identity, whatever that's in, for the identity that Jesus wants to give us, right? We put aside for them, they put aside their profession, they put aside their family connections, and they decided that they were going to become a disciple of Jesus, and that's what they were going to be known for, and that's what they were going to do. And this word disciple is, kind of gets misused, all right? So sometimes we use this word disciple in a weird way. We We've, we make it a verb, or we make it an adjective. We say something like, uh, I'm being discipled, um, or I'm you know, uh, going to this disciple-type class. We like, make this word into something. A disciple is a noun in Scripture. It's almost always used to refer to a person who has changed their identity into someone who follows a master. In this case, someone who follows Jesus. And that's the same thing that's offered to us That this is connected to our identity and a chance to follow and become disciples of Jesus. And I want you to know you may think, I don't know if I'm ready to become a disciple of Jesus. I'm not sure. I want you to know you're being discipled by something. All of us, there's something in our life that's most important. There's something in our life that guides the decisions that we make. There's something in our life that has become sort of the king on the throne in our life. And it's something that's Causing us to turn into to something. We're being discipled by something. The question is, are you being discipled by Jesus? Are you being discipled by something else? Are you Are being discipled by yourself? Are you being discipled by your own pride? Are you being discipled by potentially even your family or your job? Your, where are you finding your worth? How are you defining yourself? These are the things that will you know, kind of become the thing that's discipling you. And Jesus says, I want you to trade that in and I want you to follow me. I'm worried that what will happen as we go, kind of go through this really intense teaching that challenges us every week is that we'll just kind of get fatigued on being challenged and we'll allow ourselves to learn things and not really apply them. Because disciples, the thing that, that defines a disciple is that they are teachable and humble in spirit and they are desiring to grow and learn. They realize that Jesus is inviting them to become disciple, and they've put that as a main priority in their life and they want to grow and move and be transformed in that relationship. And I'm worried that we might hear all of this and not apply any of the things that we're, we're learning. I think Jesus' main teaching here, and some of it is going to sound really familiar. I mean, it's things like um, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the peacemakers, etc. It's love for enemies. It's the golden rule Uh, It's, you have heard it said, but I would say it's, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. It's, don't worry, you know, your Father in heaven knows what you need. It's our Father who art in heaven and the prayer that Jesus puts on display. It's it's judgment. It's all these intense, important topics that Jesus lays out. And I think sometimes we might just listen to those things and not necessarily uh, apply them. I think there are a lot of people who don't love Jesus, but they might love his teaching. James puts it like this, and this is the danger for us. This is not in your uh, in your slides there. So this is James chapter one, verse twenty-two. I'll just read it to you. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James sees the same problem that we're fickle. <laughs> we know what to do. Sometimes we read it and we learn it and then we don't actually do anything with it. The mark of a disciple is learning and it's not just theory. It's practical. It's pragmatic. You know, I, was, uh, I went to... Um, I went to a few different colleges. I went to University of Connecticut for a couple years, and at first I thought I was going to join the business program. And so I did two years at at UConn, and uh, my junior year I had to basically choose which school I would go into. It was a university format. So I applied to the, the business side of things and got accepted into the School of Business for my junior year. And that meant my junior and senior year I was going to actually be doing a lot of practical work I was going to be going into a business and doing an internship and becoming kind of a, um, you know, somebody who was an apprentice of someone who was doing business somewhere and kind of learn the ropes. And that's kind of the model that we have for, for learning, right? Uh, instead, it was like I felt like God called me out of doing something in the corporate world. At the time, I was actually working in the corporate world and doing... Uh, I went from insurance sales to IT. I was kind of working my way through this corporation doing different kinds of jobs and kind of seeing what I liked. And at the time, I remember I came into work one day and I sat at my cubicle and there was a—I worked from like 5 p.m. to like 11 p.m. I did like the second shift, two and a half, one and a half, whatever you call that, that five to 11 shift. And I look across the, the cubicle and there's a guy sitting there and he's, he's pointed this way and I'm pointed this way and we're kind of like buds. And this, like, 50-, 60-year-old guy who just looked, like, sweaty and, and like, really sad and, like, depressed. I remember sitting down and thinking, is that what I want, like, my life to look like in, like, 30 years from now? Like, if I just throw my life into this corporate, like, carousel and just find my way into a job that I like within this corporation— you know, whether it be sales or technology or, or whatever. I was kind of looking at all kinds of different things. Will I, will I be happy with what's going on here? You know, and, and so it was at that time when I started to really pray about it and started to really think about it. And I remember at the time I was working with this little middle school youth ministry. It was like a couple kids that just wanted to get together and eat Taco Bell and hang out and play basketball. And so after church, I would basically just fill my car with middle schoolers I had a 1991 Acura Integra GS, GSR, actually, if you're really into those cars. They're sweet. I wish I could have, find another one. Uh, they're, they're all gone by now. Um, and I would fill this car, and at first it was just two or three kids, and then it was 10 kids, and it was like 12 kids, and at some point it became like a, a clown car. We were just jamming kids in this vehicle. I had a hatchback. They were climbing in through the back. I had kids in the trunk. I mean, it was just bananas. And we would go to Taco Bell after church, and we would just talk about Jesus after church. This was like the thing that was bringing me the most amount of life at that time. And I realized, I actually really felt like God might be calling me to do ministry, because the thing that was like most important to me was like investing in these people, these these kids, these middle schoolers, which the church had kind of forgotten about and not cared about. But I, for whatever reason, just loved being around them and fielding their questions and talking to them about the stuff they were dealing with and going through. And it was like weird. I liked middle schoolers. I know that's weird. It's still weird to like middle schoolers. No offense to the middle schoolers in the room. Uh, I now have one living in my house. And I remember thinking, okay, maybe God's calling me into ministry. And so what did that look like for me? Well, it meant that at that point I was a junior. I transferred schools. I I started working in a church. I found a, a pastor to apprentice under to become a disciple of, to, to get around and say, okay, I like the way that you do ministry. Teach me everything I can learn here. I went to school and learned all the stuff that you would have to learn in school about being in ministry, but then also apprenticed under somebody who, like, you know, I respected and thought was a great pastor. And it wasn't a couple years later until I came out and started to do ministry. And I think sometimes as Christians, we need to identify are we in our freshman and sophomore year where we just have no basis for understanding Christianity yet? And we have to learn. We have to give ourselves some time to learn the word of God and to learn what it means to look like a Christian and to learn to kind of work our way through the basics of what it means to be a believer. But some of us never make the transition to junior and senior year where we should be apprenticing and we should be out there doing things. We should be pragmatically putting our faith into action and working out in the world to make a difference for the kingdom of God. We have not made the transition from going from the baby Christian who needs to have kind of the, the, the information backfilled, right, to make sure that we're on the right page and we know what we're doing here, to actually putting into practice the stuff that we've learned. And, and I think sometimes we don't make that transition. We just stay baby Christians who go, hey, feed me, give me another sermon, teach me something, right? I'm going to listen to another podcast this week and learn another thing. And I'm going to read something online. I read an article from this magazine or this person or I follow somebody on, you know, who I'm learning things from. I like, "No, at some point your life, your disciple journey, your apprenticeship to Jesus needs to make a difference in the world around you. Are you following what I'm saying here?" We have, we we stay babies. We stay baby Christians. And we don't take the jump to become apprentices of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. The most closely associated word that would be translated to disciple is apprentice, because disciple is much more than just learning, right? The word actually translates to like change. Uh, we'll get to this in a minute. This is part of it. But like to have your mind change or to have your, your way change. That's what repent means. We'll, we'll start there. But to have your disciples, like, it's to become an apprentice. It's to say, I'm going to learn everything I can and put into practice the things that I learn and actually live this thing out in the real world. So many of us don't make that jump. And we're like wondering why nobody around us comes to faith. We're wondering why nobody around us responds to our, to our invites to come with us to church. We're wondering why no one around us shares what's going on in their lives, why we don't pray with people, why we don't actually put anything into practice because we didn't go from being baby Christians to being apprentices. You're called to be disciple, to transfer your identity into Jesus, to follow him, and then to take that jump from just learning and backfilling all the stuff that you might need to know to becoming an apprentice and following Jesus. And in that day, an apprentice would follow the rabbi, and they would be so close that they had a phrase for this. They would say, you need to live in the dust of your rabbi. You need to live so close, right? Right? right on top of and with your rabbi so you learn everything you possibly can to be able to put it into practice. And so I want you to know Jesus is calling us all to become disciples, but then the discipleship begins with repentance. And repentance literally is this word that I don't think always makes it into our regular vernacular and our, our regular culture. It's like this idea that we need to change something and this concept that we first change our mind, right? That's the, the actual, like, exact definition of repentance is to have your mind changed. But it's more than that. And I want to show you here in Luke chapter 5, right? Here we go. I'm going to read this to you. So it says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats that belonged to the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here's the, the lesson on the lake, right? You have the sermon on the mount, this is the sermon on the lake. So when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, "Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch." Simon answered, "Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. This is a good apprentice moment." I don't actually believe that what you're asking me to do makes any sense. I think this is a teachable moment. I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to be obedient and go with what you tell me to do. Smart decision, Peter. So then said, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Like, this is the first miracle that these guys have seen, and they're overwhelmed by the power of Jesus. The master that they've chosen to follow, the rabbi that they've chosen to follow, is now showing himself to be something even greater than a regular rabbi. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, and he said, and look what he says. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. A lot of people say this is like how they funded the beginning of their ministry. Two boatfuls of fish that now get turned into cash that they can spend on the way as they go out of town to... to communicate the gospel. And what's overwhelming here for this apprentice, for this disciple, is to realize how powerful Jesus is and how sinful he is. The beginning of being a disciple is this idea that we first have to find repentance or discipleship, in this case, begins with repentance. Verse 9, I'm just going to finish this section. He says, For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of the day, the catch of fish that they had taken. And so James and John, sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners, then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. Same exact concept that we just saw. Another story to help you understand it. But the first response of Peter is repentance. And that's where discipleship begins. It begins with repentance. And I want you to know this is, not something our culture teaches us at all. Your culture teaches you that you're great, that you're enough, that you're wonderful, that you're trying really hard, that you're good, that something inside of you, at the core of who you are, is good. Your culture tells you, hey, you need to go to places where they celebrate you. You need to make sure that you only work with businesses who celebrate you. You go to churches that celebrate you. Like, that makes me want to throw up. We will never celebrate you at this church. We will only celebrate the one who went to a cross and died a death so that he could pay for our sins at this church. It will not be you that we celebrate. It will not be your lifestyle or your choices or your culture or your whatever. We won't celebrate you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. We will celebrate Jesus. Now, will we celebrate what this church is able to accomplish through the people? Yes we celebrate what we do together in the name of Jesus as we build the kingdom, absolutely we'll celebrate that. But the world tells you, hey, you should be celebrated. There's something special about you. You're a good person at your core. It's not true. It's not true. Discipleship begins with repentance. Repentance saying, I am sinful. At my core, I will be selfish. I will choose myself at my core, I will not put others above myself. At my core, I will do things that I'm not proud of. The greatest among us will still struggle to do the right thing in every case. That's why we say around here that we're, you know, no perfect people are allowed at this church. Cuz there is no such thing. If you're a perfect person, again, there's a church down the street from you that would down the street from us that would love to have you. That's not what we're doing here. All of us We start discipleship with repentance. And Peter is overwhelmed. He says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. That's where it begins as a disciple. It begins with you saying, I am a sinful person. I'm selfish. I'll do my own thing. I'll serve myself. I'll do wrong. I'll be, every single time, I'll struggle to do what is right. Because there's something inside of me that is sinful. That's the beginning of discipleship. Understanding that repentance is, is necessary, And this idea for repentance, it means to change your mind, but also means to change your intention, your practice, and your direction. All right, I'm going to stand up. Hopefully I won't die. I do need heart surgery. Uh, and here's here's the picture for me for repentance, right? I feel like sometimes we are moving in a certain direction, and so we're walking towards something that we want, right? And we're saying, okay, here's my focus, and this is where I'm going. Repentance, this concept of repentance... Is to turn away and go in the opposite direction. So, and I once said this, I I think I said this at a camp one time when I was working with students, and I was like, and so you go 360 degrees in the other direction. (laughs) It's not true. For those of you who don't know math, that would put me all the way back in the same direction, okay? Repentance is turning 180 degrees and moving in the other direction, towards something else. It's like, I'm going to put aside the sin that's drawing me in, the selfishness that's drawing me in, the things of this world that are drawing me in, the culture around me that's drawing me in. I'm going to put those things aside. I'm going to turn my back on those things and now I'm going to move towards what God wants for me. And repentance, I like to think of it too, is like you go from looking down, looking around you, looking like what's in front of you, to turning in the other direction and looking up, right, and saying, okay, God, I want to be active in your kingdom. I want to do the things that you want me to do. I want to become the person that you want me to become. And that's where discipleship begins. It begins with you saying, enough of me. It doesn't work. I can't do this. No matter what I do, right, I continue to go in the wrong direction. When I turn around and I look up at what God has called me to, that's when I start to see some of these blessings that God wants to bring into my life. Some of this, uh, this um, passion that God wants to bring into my life. Some of some of this, you know, uh, having this mission to call my own, to give me some, some movement in my life, that's when it starts to happen. And that's the beginning of disciples. Disciples are marked by obedience. They're marked by repentance. This repentance is a huge piece of what it looks like to begin this discipleship journey that we turn and we look up, that we lay some things down and pick some things up, that we turn ourselves in the direction that God wants us to move, that we give up, we change our mind, our intention, our practice, our direction into the area that God has called us to. It means that when we learn incredible things that God wants to teach us, that we're applying those things to our lives and actually being transformed. There's a humility that comes with repentance that says, I don't have it figured out and I need to change. It's humility that drives this whole thing. And I want you to know the world will tell you the exact opposite. The world will tell you you're great. You got it together. You're better than most people. The world will say you're a good person. You're a good person. Look, you gave something to this charity or you did this thing or you, you put, you know, this one. And the Bible will tell you the opposite. You're a selfish person. And what you need is Repentance. And you need to follow what Jesus is, is calling you to. You need to pick up the life that makes you an apprentice to this rabbi who's calling you into this discipleship relationship. And you need to become this disciple, not, not talk about it, but actually do the things that he's called us to. And so the last idea is that disciples are marked by obedience. And this is John chapter 14, verse 15 and 21. This is Literally, Jesus saying it as clearly as he possibly can. If you love me, keep my commands. I think what we often do is we say, I love Jesus, but I don't want to keep his commands. And look how Jesus phrases this. He says, if you love me. He says, the decision is whether or not you love me, not whether or not you'll obey. The decision is whether or not you're going to decide to become a disciple, not whether or not you're going to follow the commands that I give you. Right? When we decide to become a disciple of Jesus, this is borne out in us keeping the commands that Jesus has given us. This is when we go from being somebody who just learns information to actually lives out the commands and the call of Jesus in our lives. He he goes on in verse 21, he says in another way, sort of similar. He says, whoever has my commands... And keeps them is the one who loves me. I can identify the people who love me because they're the ones that actually live this thing out. They're not just talking about it. They're not just listening to another podcast. They're not just sitting through another sermon. They're not just saying, hey, let's do Bible study. Hey, that's a really great point. And then going home and forgetting all about it and going right back to the sinful, selfish nature that that they were living in before they knew Jesus. He says, the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. we are marked by obedience, that Jesus has called us, if we love him, to do the things that he's called us to do. You're going to learn a lot of applicable ideas through the next 14 weeks. The question is, will you actually obey the things that Jesus laid out in his teaching? And I want you to know that the Sermon on the Mount is designed, in a weird way, to show you how necessary... It is to have a God who saves you. How poorly we live up to the standard that God has for us. It's designed to bring us to places where we have to make decisions and decide that we have not got this figured out. That we are failing in multiple areas. In fact, it can be a little distressing. I've been reading through it a lot kind of just kind of reading through. There's about three chapters in a row. I've just been reading through it and reading through it and reading through it. And if you actually like spend time on each one of the sections, you can actually feel kind of crappy, (laughs) like legit. That's uh, kind of how everyone's like, man, I'm not doing this very well at all. I'm the pastor. What's going to happen here? How are people going to process this? I mean, it calls out sin after sin after sin after sin. It's like, yep, struggle there. Yep, struggle there. Yep, don't have that figured out. Yep. The point is not to... Discourage you. The point is to push you in the direction of understanding that you need Jesus. You can't do it on your own. It's not possible to do it on your own. You can't live up to the standard of Jesus in your own life. Jesus went through Galilee teaching this in all kinds of areas, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all through Syria. And people brought to him all that were in various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, those who were paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, the region across the sea followed him. Jesus can get a crowd pretty easily. And in this case, he did get a crowd. In fact, if you read through John, as he kind of uh, points this out, People began following Jesus for the free food. You know, we talk about food being our sixth value. It was a value to the people then. Jesus fed a couple thousand people multiple times, and it seems like his crowds grew and grew and grew. And then there was a day where Jesus looked around, and he said, I basically, all of these people that are here are here for the free food. And then he gave a sermon that said, hey, if you really want to follow me, you have to uh, eat my body and drink my blood. And then it says everybody abandoned him. So you must obey Jesus' words and go eat someone's body and drink it. No, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. It's not easy. And crowds want to follow Jesus. But disciples understand that if I get close to Jesus and I apprentice under him and I put these into practice and I allow myself to be changed and I find repentance, that's when it begins to take shape. That's when I begin to be, become the disciple that God has called me to, to become. And so the last idea is that the kingdom is anywhere the king has dominion. And I want you to understand that there can be crowds that follow Jesus that don't believe his teachings or that don't want to actually do the things that he's called them to do. And there are real disciples who get close to Jesus and they want to to spend time with him. But I think our problem today in our culture is that we have two different types of people we have some people that want the kingdom of God. They like the ideas of Jesus. They like, they like the, "Hey, uh, you know we should love our enemies and we should uh, treat others as we want to be treated and we shouldn't judge people." They like the concepts of the kingdom of Jesus, but they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus as their king. And then I think we have the opposite problem, where we have Christians who love the idea of Jesus, but they don't want anything to do with his kingdom. They don't want to be in a community. They want to stay at home and worship Him on their own. I don't want to share my life with other people. I don't want to be part of what's going on. And I want you to understand that being a disciple of Jesus means that we both get the king and the kingdom. And He has dominion over places because we say He's the king of our lives. He has dominion over ourselves, over our family, over our home, over our choices and our influence, over our workplaces over the, the places that we have influence, over the, 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 the relationships that we have beyond our families, that we give Jesus dominion, that we give him access, that we put him in charge of these places and we choose both the king and the kingdom, that we understand our churches won't be perfect, our pastors won't be perfect, that's okay. We're still called to be part of the kingdom and creating the kingdom together with other Christians and we're all called to put the king on the throne in our, in our lives. We can't be people who want the king without the kingdom, and we can't be people who want the kingdom without the king. We need both of those things. And so I want to I close our time, if I, if I would. Would you just find a prayerful space? Would you just close your eyes, get yourself into a prayerful space, and would you just open your hands? I just want to pray over you. I want to pray that God would show you places in your life where you need Uh, repentance, where you need obedience. Places where you're open to the idea of Jesus changing and transforming you. Places where you know you've been holding back and you haven't really become the apprentice. You've just allowed yourself to learn the information. I want you to think about what God might be trying to tell you today, what, what he might be moving inside of your heart, might be moving you towards place where you might need repentance, or you haven't made him king, or you're not sure if you want to put into practice the things that you've learned, and I want you to offer those things to Jesus today. It's possible you may need to repent of sin that you won't let go of, or that you've become too connected to, or you've begun to rely on too much. Would you just spend a moment just repenting of that or asking God to move in you in some of those other places? God, I pray that we would take our our sin seriously and we would find repentance, a change of direction, intention, and heart. God, in places where we haven't put into practice the things that we know are, are right there in front of us that we've learned but we haven't actually become the apprentice on, God, would you show us what that looks like in our lives to put those things into practice? God, would you continue, even as we go through this sermon series, to take more of these places and to transform us in these places? Would you challenge us in every area of our lives that we continue to hold on to or continue to rely on or continue to define ourselves with where we should be relying on you or defining ourselves by our relationship with you? God, would you point those things out? Would they become glaring right in front of us, right in our face until we deal with them. I pray, God, that as each one of us starts to allow ourselves to be transformed and to be changed and to be challenged, God, that you would do even greater works in this church. That you would continue to reach other people, that you would continue to bring people in, that you would give us opportunities to love our community and to change the world around us, to build the kingdom that you are the king of. God, help us to be serious about our sin, serious about our identities, serious about these things that you called us to look at and pay attention to. Would you help us to be brave to challenge those things? In Jesus' name, amen. I I have one more thing for you guys. So, great. Maybe God showed you something. Maybe he pointed something out to you. Your challenge, your homework for this week is to share that thing with another person. That's it. You could do it in your small group, your spouse, a friend. Share a place where you feel challenged in your identity or in in a place of sin or a place where you need to change with another person as we prepare for beginning the sermon series where we get into the teaching next week and we'll be doing the Beatitudes. So get ready for that. That's going to be fun. Your homework this week is to share that with another person. That would be you putting into practice what you learned today. So I'm going to try to give you homework this week and next week, okay? So that's what I'm calling you to. All right, everybody have a great day. We'll see you next week.